uh, this uh, evening, this evening, uh, with uh, the time left that we have tonight, I, I wanted to, I, I, I had something else planned for us, but uh, after this morning, I wanted to share with you uh, just a, a few more thoughts along the subject that we were talking about this morning, God's design uh, for marriage, God's design for uh, the expression of uh, intimacy within marriage. And I know that we have little ears with us tonight, and so I'm going to be uh, do my best to uh, veil things and, and make it uh, age-appropriate. Uh, but if, so if you find me searching for words, it's because I'm trying to look for a less uh, explicit term. And if it seems like I'm being incredibly vague tonight, please understand that I'm trying to be sensitive to uh, the family-style service that we have. But how many of you are glad we got our kids with us? What a blessing to have the children in the house tonight. And so uh, what I wanted to do tonight is I, there are three main objections to what I taught this morning, and sometimes they're presented as arguments, sometimes as objections, and a lot of times Christians who believe the Bible, who believe the Word of God, they don't know how to answer these objections, and so I wanted to bring you uh, some teaching from God's Word on, on how to handle some of what is being said in the culture today surrounding uh, this issue, these issues that we talked about uh, this morning. And so I would like to start in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 tonight, and we're going to begin in verse 14. 1 Peter 3 and verse 14. You know, God is preparing for himself a people, the Bible says. Preparing for himself a people, that he is purifying his church. And we're a part of that. In fact, what we're doing right now as we've come together to worship God and to hear his word, we're, we're part of what the Lord is doing in the earth today of preparing a people for himself. And, and so tonight's message is really about preparing us and, and helping us to live as the people of God in the world today. And so 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 it says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you and your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So from this passage here, a couple things. The first is, if you suffer for doing good, you will be blessed. All right? And so I, I know that, again, we live in a world, we live in a culture, and, and the, the, the biblical view on human relations, the biblical view of marriage. It is not the, the standard view. It is not the accepted and culturally uh, praised view today. And to hold, what to, to hold to what the Bible says means that you will be at odds with a lot of people. But just so you know, 
If you should suffer for righteousness sake, if you should suffer for doing good, here it says, you will be blessed. That it is better to stand for righteousness sake and to suffer harm, possibly to suffer being ostracized or being persecuted or, or being uh, talked against or, or whatever the case may be. It's better to stand with the Lord and to stand in his power and in his blessing than to try to, be appe- to, try to appease a culture that is rejecting God. Jesus, of course, said that we would be hated by all men for his sake. We, I, I think we need to come to terms with this. If you haven't already, you've got to come to terms with the fact that as a Bible-believing Christian, that you are going to be in the minority of what people believe today. you, you just got to come to terms with that. And that's not a shock. That's not a surprise. That's not a, oh, we didn't see that one coming. No, Jesus, 2,000 years ago, said, if you stand with me, you'll be hated by the world. We just have to come to terms with that. We have to come to grips with that in our hearts. And I think that many Christians today have not yet come to that realization. That they have not fully appreciated what it means to live for Christ in an ungodly world. Because we've lived in and grown up in and and all of our lives have been in a nation that at once valued the things of God. Nevertheless, the culture has shifted. The culture has changed. And we as believers, we've got to wake up to that reality. We've got to open our eyes. We're not living in the 1950s anymore. We're not living with leave it to beaver anymore. The, the, the sort of cultural norms that aligned with biblical truth, those days are not here. We live in different days. And, and we need to be, have the mindset that we are living in a war zone. We're living in... Uh, 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 not, a, not a physical conflict, but a spiritual conflict. And we're on the winning side, amen? We are on the winning side. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. Amen. We are on the winning side. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We need not to cower to those who scream loudly and forcefully and try to push their agenda that is unrighteous and ungodly. And if we suffer, if we suffer in the process, we'll be blessed for it. And that was the the mentality that the disciples had in Acts chapter 5 and 6 when they were punished and beaten for standing for Christ. When they were warned, you cannot preach in the name of Jesus anymore. They said, well, we're going to obey God rather than you. We're going to obey the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And so they beat them up and threw them in jail. And the Bible says that they went away rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. This is the mentality that the believer must have in the days that we are living in. It would be a great honor. It would be a great privilege to suffer for Christ. In fact, we would be blessed to be able to do so. 
Number two, it says that we need to be ready to give an answer, to make a defense for the hope that we have, for the faith that we have. We need to be ready to answer objections and to defend our beliefs, to defend the word of God. To, to not just say, well, well, this is what the Bible says, but, but when those have, people have questions, when people have objections, that we can answer those biblically and accurately. And so I want to answer for you today the three most common objections that I've experienced, that I've heard as I've studied this issue, as I've lived in the world that we all live in. The three most common objections that I hear from outside the people in the world and also sometimes from people in the church about the fact that God's plan for marriage is one man, one woman for life. The, the three most common objections. The first is, well, the Bible says that we are not under the law, but under grace. Have you heard that? We're not under the law anymore. We're, we're under grace. And so... What the law says, what the Old Testament says about uh, man and woman, what the Old Testament says about expression and, and, and intimacy, what the Bible says about these things in the Old Testament, but we're not under the law, we're under grace. And so therefore we are free to follow whatever desires that we want, to do whatever we please, that, that God has not laid those restrictions upon humanity anymore because we are not under the law, but we are under grace. Well, that statement is found in Romans chapter 6, so I'd invite you to, to open there with me. Go to Romans chapter 6 tonight. How do you answer those who, who if you were to say, well, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, that that any other definition of marriage is not a marriage. You could put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. It doesn't matter what you call it. Marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, the, the great theologian R.C. Sproul, he said this of this issue. He said, you can call an alligator a kangaroo all you want, but it doesn't make it a kangaroo. You could call an alligator a kangaroo till you're blue in the face. You might even be able to get other people. You might even convince other people that that is not an alligator, but it is a kangaroo, but it does not fundamentally change the fact that it is an alligator. And just because in our day and age, the Supreme Court of America has declared that marriage is now open to not just a man and a woman, but a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Just because the Supreme Court wants to call an alligator a kangaroo, it doesn't make it a kangaroo. Because there is a court above the Supreme Court. It's the court of heaven. There's a throne in heaven. It's occupied by Jesus Christ, the Lord. And he has defined what marriage is. And so it doesn't matter how people want to de define and redefine things. What God has defined clearly cannot be changed. So nevertheless, people will say we're not under the law, we're under grace. And we find that again in Romans chapter 6. Now this is why you cannot take verses out of context. Because if you take a verse out of context, you can make it say anything. Now, let us remind ourselves, we are in the book of Romans, okay? Romans chapter 6. 
Now, to get to Romans chapter 6, what else do I have to read? Chapter 5. To read chapter 5, what do I have to read? Chapter 4 and chapter 3 and chapter 2 and chapter 1 of Romans. And in fact, Romans chapter 1 gives the most clear and I would say forceful condemnation of the practice that we are talking about tonight. It, it actually goes on, Romans chapter 1 says that a nation that gives itself to the kind of LGBT activity that we see in our nation, that that is a result of the judgment of God on that nation. Did you know that? Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. The wrath of God, that's the judgment of God. And unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How has God revealed his truth to humanity? Verse 20, his invisible attributes. God in creation, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. No one can stand before God and say, ah, oh, God, I didn't know you existed. Oh, God, I didn't know your truth. I didn't know your revelation. No, in fact, even in creation, God has clearly explained his world and how it is to function. That's just in general revelation. Of course, we have special revelation, the word of God, which we're reading tonight. So no one is without an excuse. Nevertheless, they suppress that truth in their hearts in unrighteousness. Verse 21, for although humanity, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's describing the American university system right there. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Edu people educated beyond their intelligence because they have suppressed the truth about God. Exchanging the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, the judgment of God, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not seem fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. If that doesn't describe American culture in 2022, I don't know what does. We live in a nation that, has re- that is rejecting God. And because of that, kicking God out of schools, passing of Roe v. Wade, passing of Obergefell, passing of these unrighteous, immoral laws, God is bringing judgment upon this nation. And we look at the situation and we see, how can people think this way? It, it, It defies logic. It defies reason. It makes no sense. It has no basis in reality and in truth. It's because the Bible says their foolish hearts have been darkened. God has given them over to a debased mind, a mind that does not work. And so to get to Romans chapter 6, where it says you are not under the law, but under grace, you have to pass through Romans chapter 1. And so whatever Romans 6 is saying, you are not under the law, but under grace, it is not giving license to redefining marriage. Can we agree on that? Whatever it means saying you're not under the law but under grace, it's not saying that you can live in a relationship with the the same sex. It's not saying that. Because Romans 1 is so abundantly clear that that is universally condemned by God. And so what what is Paul saying in Romans chapter 6? Well, he starts by saying Romans 6.1. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Again, he's writing to the believers in Rome, talking to believers. Are we as believers to live in sin because we're under grace? By no means. By no means. In verse 11 of chapter 6, he says, you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So you may have passions, you may have desires that are sinful, but we don't yield to them. We don't yield our bodily members to them. Why? Because Jesus is our Lord, not our body. Our body is not our Lord. Our desire is not our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. And so we make our body obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13, do not present your members, that's your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members... To God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. The whole point of not being under the law but being under grace is that sin will no longer have dominion in our lives. It's not that we now have license to sin, it's that we've been set free from the power of sin. Amen. 
that the law weakened by the flesh did not have the power to give us, didn't have the power to set us free from sin, but Jesus through the cross and giving us his grace, filling us with his spirit, we now no longer live under the law, we live under grace, set free of the power of sin and set free to live for God. And so this idea that I'm not under the law, I'm under grace, that means I can live however I want. No, you got to go read the whole, you got to read the context. It's not what it's saying at all. In fact, it's saying the exact opposite. To not be under the law, but to be under grace is to be set free from the power of sin because we're part of the new covenant, which is a better covenant. Amen. So that's the first sort of argument that's presented The second one, and this is the one that I've heard from my college classrooms. I don't know why my English composition teacher was so hell-bent on discrediting the word of God. What that has to do with adverbs and prepositions, I don't know. Nevertheless, my English composition teacher was absolutely bent on discrediting what the word of God says about marriage, of all things. I've heard it in my college classrooms. I've heard it on Larry King Live. I've heard it uh, just constantly, constantly, this argument, the second argument, that you Christians, you pick and choose from the Old Testament. You, you pick the things that you want to condemn, but then you overlook other things. How many of you have ever heard that before? You, you, don't, you, don't, uh, you don't take everything from the Old Testament. You only take certain things from the Old Testament. Don't you Christians, don't you eat pork? Well, doesn't the Old Testament say that you can't eat pork? So there you go. You're just picking and choosing. Don't you eat shellfish? Don't you wear clothes of mixed fibers? Which, again, the Old Testament law says that you should not, God's people should not wear clothes of mixed fibers. So, so what do we do with this? I'm, obvious, I'm wearing clothes of mixed fibers right now. So... And I ate pork just the other day. So the, the accusation is you, you just pick and choose. You, you, you get rid of the parts that you don't, that you, that you don't like and, and you still keep the parts that you do like. You, you don't apply an even scale to the Old Testament. Again, how many of you have heard this line of argumentation before? Now what you need to understand about this is that the Old Testament law, Mosaic law, we read from it this this morning, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20. We read from Genesis chapter 1 today. The Old Testament Mosaic law, it was made up of three parts, three components. You can write these down. It was the moral law. That's the first one, the moral law. The moral law had to do with the what, what, what goes in that category? Well, the Ten Commandments are a good uh, expression of the moral law. Again, the sexual ethics, the, the holiness code is part of God's moral law. That's the first component. The second component was the civil law. The civil law. And this was how the people of Israel were to live in the nation of Israel, in the land of Israel. And so the civil law had all kinds of rules and regulations on, on every part of, of Hebrew life. What to do if you had an ox that killed your neighbor's donkey? What do you do? What, what's the restitution you must pay? 
This is where we get the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It was, it was their civil law. It was the laws of the land in national Israel. That's the second component. The third component is ceremonial law. These had to do with purification from sin, being uh, ceremonially clean to walk with God. This had to do with the sacrificial system that was instituted uh, for sin in the Old Testament. So these three components, the moral component, the civil component, and the ceremonial component. And so when Jesus came and he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, what he's saying is that the purpose for the Mosaic law, the purpose is fulfilled in my ministry. The purpose for the Mosaic law is fulfilled in Christ. Again, the Mosaic law was what God gave to Moses at the Mount Sinai, when, when God had delivered his people from Egypt, he, he formed them and fashioned them into a nation by giving them his law. Jesus comes, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He's talking about the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai, given to the children of Israel. Now again, Paul says, Romans 6, we are not under Mosaic law. We are under grace. We're under a new covenant. But what you have to understand is when Paul is talking about this, that he's talking primarily about the civil and ceremonial components of the Mosaic law. He's not doing away with the moral law of God. Well, why, do, why isn't the moral law of God done away with? Well, it's because the moral law of God did not originate at Mount Sinai. God's moral law was not invented for the children of Israel. Because God's moral law, what is right and what is wrong, though it was codified, though it was expressed in Mosaic law, it's not necessarily an expression of Mosaic law, it's an expression of God's nature and God's character. And because God is eternal, his moral law is eternal. God does not change, therefore his moral law cannot be changed or altered. It is absolute. It is an expression of himself. It always has been and it always will be. The moral law preceded Mosaic law. It was reflected in Mosaic law, but it continues past the fulfillment of Mosaic law. Let me give you some examples of this. Genesis chapter 4. There's two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain gets mad at his younger brother and murders him. Well, the law of Moses hadn't been written. The sixth commandment hadn't been written yet. It hadn't been written yet that thou shalt not murder. Nevertheless, murder was still evil. Murder was still wrong. God comes and he questions Cain, where is your brother? Why have you killed your brother? Before the law was ever written down on tablets of stone, it is, God's moral law is in the human heart. And it is an expression of his nature and character. It was evil. Murder has always been evil. And it will always be evil. 
It's not that, oh, the, now the law is fulfilled and so I can go around murdering people now. And that's not how this works. Genesis 18, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 18 and 19. Though the, the, the holiness code had not been written in Leviticus chapter 20 yet, what they were practicing there in those cities, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, was an abomination to God. And he rained down fire from heaven to destroy those cities as an act of judgment. It was wrong then, before the law. It was wrong codified under the law. And because it was wrong before Mosaic law, it continues to be wrong after the law, the purpose of the law has been fulfilled. Likewise with adultery. Genesis chapter 39. Uh, uh, it's, it's Joseph and, and Potiphar's wife entices him to come and commit adultery with him. And he says, how in the world could I sin against God in this way? Where did he get that? The, the Ten Commandments hadn't been written yet. It would still be... 500 years almost until the Ten Commandments would be written. No, because the moral law of God is written on the human heart. It, it was wrong before Mosaic law. It was codified in Mosaic law. But the moral law of God is universal. It has always been and it always will be because it's an expression of his nature. It will always be wrong to commit idolatry. It will always be wrong to commit adultery. It will always be wrong to lie and to steal and commit murder. And it will always be wrong to commit these kinds of sexual acts that we're talking about tonight. Just because it was codified in Mosaic law doesn't negate the fact that it was wrong before Sinai and it is wrong after the cross of Christ. Jesus fulfilling the law primarily is talking about the ceremonial law. It's primarily talking about the sacrificial system. We no longer offer sacrifices. Jesus is the final sacrifice. To say we're not under the law but we're under grace is talking about how we are saved. That we are saved by grace apart from works. So this idea that you pick and choose from the Old Testament. Yes, I eat shellfish and pork because th those parts of the law have been fulfilled in Christ. Yes, I wear clothes of mixed fibers. Those parts of, of the civil law and ceremonial law have been fulfilled in Christ. But the moral law of God stands because it is an expression of his nature and his character which does not change. We do not do away with God's moral law. It is for today. And it guides people in how to live in the world that God made. The third objection, and this one is gaining quite a bit of steam today, is that the Bible condemns what the Bible is condemning in the passages where it condemns the subject that we're talking about, what it is condemning is abusive or forceful relationships. But what we have today in 2022, 
These are not abusive or forceful expressions. These are loving and monogamous relationships. And these are people who are trying to make the Christian faith compatible with the LGBTQ movement. They're teaching that you can be a Christian and express yourself in this way because what the Bible condemns is not what we have today. What the Bible is condemning was some sort of abusive relationship, not these loving and monogamous relationships that we have today. Now this is patently false. This is categorically untrue because the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible written over the course of 3,000 years by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different languages. Though they were written in various places, various cultures, by people who never met one another, this library compiled together by the Holy Spirit tells one universal story from beginning to end. And the Bible on this subject is universally clear. It universally condemns the LGBT practice. Universally. It's not like it's 50-50 where, well, about half the, half the time it talks about it, it's, it's pro it, and half the time it talks to it, it it's negative it. It's not 50-50, it's not 70-30, it is 100%. When the Bible addresses this issue, it condemns it categorically. Every single time there is in the scripture a deviation from the standard of God's good design, what he called very good and what he blessed, every time there's a deviation of what was affirmed of and blessed by Jesus Christ, every single time some other practice is mentioned, it is called sin and people are called to repent of that sin. Every single time. Those who would have you believe that Christianity and LGBTQ lifestyle are compatible are themselves self-deceived and are trying to deceive you. They are not compatible in any way whatsoever. Again, I draw you back to Romans chapter 6. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We have died to sin. We have been buried by baptism. We have been raised to new life. We should walk in newness of life. Verse 6, we should no longer be enslaved to sin. Consider yourselves, verse 11, You must, believer, we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Where would Paul have gotten his definition of sin from? What, what, What... where would he be informed by what sin is and what sin is not? Well, it's, it's the Old Testament law. It's God's moral law that was codified in the Old Testament. 
This is, it is so abundantly clear. And so any attempt to try to reconcile these two things, they are absolutely irreconcilable. Any other practice other than one man, one woman in committed covenant relationship, monogamous relationship, anything other than that, any expression other than that is sin and must be repented of. That's the Bible's clear teaching from Genesis to Revelation. And so if you're battling in this area, again, there is hope for you. There is hope in Christ. Jesus will set you free. But I will say this, we all must, believer, whether you battle this sin or another sin, we are all called to put sin to death in our, in our lives, to walk in holiness with God, to take up our cross and follow Christ. We, we cannot give quarter. We cannot give room for sin in our lives, any sin, because it will produce death in our lives. We must take up our cross. We must Follow Christ. Whatever sin we might face and battle, there is victory through Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. All of us battle. All of us must stand strong. All of us are tempted the Bible says that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our strength. So whatever temptation you're, you're facing, God also promises that he will provide a way of escape. What that means is if you are being tempted, look for the, look. Look for the way of escape. It is being provided to you by God. There is a way of escape. The Bible also says that God tempts no man. So you cannot say God is tempting me. No, in fact, temptation arises from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Do not give in to temptation. We have the authority of the word of God. We have the sword of the spirit. We have the spirit of God living on the inside of us. We have our church community that we are accountable to. We have the tools to live victorious over sin, over all sin. But we must make use of the tools that God has given to us. We can, through the power of God's spirit, put sin to death we can, through the power of God's Spirit, take up our cross, and we can follow Christ. Again, these are the three most common objections that I hear in our world today. I hope, to, I hope that I've helped you this morning in how to answer those if ever you're presented with those. I will tell you that in, in my interactions with people on this issue, I haven't had a whole lot of success in changing people's minds because unbelief is not a matter of the mind, it's a matter of the heart. And unless God moves upon their heart of stone, it doesn't matter what facts you fill their mind with. Nevertheless, we should be ready with the truth, amen?
Again, we will be hated by the world. It's just the reality that we're living in. Those who truly believe that the Bible is the literal word of God, that it is authoritative, that it is inerrant, that it is perfect, that there's only one way of salvation through faith in Christ, those who truly hold to these things, we are the minority today. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but they don't hold to the most basic and fundamental Christian beliefs. They're Christians in name only. And again, as I read from Romans chapter 1, it is a bleak picture. But we as God's people are called to be the salt and the light. The salt is a preservative. It stops the decay. And if we will be salty, there will be a, a preservation that happens in and around our families, in and around our lives that will prevent the decay of the world from touching our lives. And we need to pray to God for mercy. That's, that's been my prayer for the last several years as we've seen things spiraling in our nation like at an accelerated pace. What I've been praying to God for is mercy. God, give us mercy. We deserve judgment, but God delights in mercy. And so we as God's people, we need to intercede. We need to stand in the gap. We need to pray that God would not give us what we do deserve, but that he would be gracious and merciful to us. I believe there is hope for our world. I'm actually optimistic about the future because we serve a sovereign God. Though the immediate circumstances might seem bleak, Jesus is on the throne. And he can send a revival that would sweep this land. He can do it. But God's people, <laughs> we got to get on fire for Jesus. We, we got to quit being ashamed. We got to stand for truth. Now, again, what Philip Thompson said when he was here, his message was so good. He said, be bold. Don't be belligerent. Be bold. There's a difference. And God's people, we got to be bold. We got to get on fire for the Lord. We, we can't bend and, and kneel at the, 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 the authority of the state. We bend and kneel to only one, and his name is Jesus. And we got to stand for the truth. We got to declare the truth in love. And I believe God can turn the hearts of people. I believe God can send another great awakening to this land. But the great awakenings in this land, they were not sparked by sermons of how to live your best life now. The sermon that sparked the first great awakening by Jonathan Edwards was sinners in the hands of an angry God delivered on a Sunday evening in some little chapel with only a handful of people present, kind of like tonight. But those people's hearts were so gripped by the reality of the word of God. It sparked a fire and it turned into a flame that spread throughout all the colonies. God can do it again, but it starts in the house of God. It starts with the people of God being hungry for God, hungry for the things of God for the people of God being willing to, to put away the distractions of the world 
and be on fire for the word. Amen. Would you stand with me tonight? Our Father in heaven, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would send a moving of your Holy Spirit in our nation. Lord, that you would revive the church in our community. Lord, that it would, you would revive our church. Lord, that you would revive our hearts. Lord, that you would revive our families. Lord, if our hearts have grown cold towards you and the, the things of God, Lord, we repent of our callousness. We repent of our cold-heartedness. Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would fill us with your power, that you would fill us with love and a sound mind. Lord, that we would be passionate about you, passionate about your kingdom, passionate about living for you every single day. Lord, that you would set us free from dabbling in sin, that you would set us free, Lord, through the power of your spirit, Lord, that we would not present our members to sin, but that we would present ourselves to you and to righteousness. Lord, that we would take stands and even bold stands in our home and in our family with the things that we watch, with the, the way that we live. Lord, that your word would be central in our lives and that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives as it is in heaven, in our families as it is in heaven, in our community, in our church, in our nation, God, as it is in heaven. Lord, send revival in our land. Lord, stir the hearts of humanity. Lord, draw people back to yourself. Lord, draw people back to your word. Lord, in this time of such confusion, I pray that people would be awakened in their spirit to the truth of your word, to the clarity of your word, to, to the, the, the knowability of your word, and that people would be drawn to your word and drawn to the truth, and that you would save souls and transform families and transform communities. Lord, that you would be merciful and gracious to us. Lord, that you would not give us what we do deserve, but that you would grant to us what we don't deserve, a move of your spirit in our hearts and in our land. And let it start with us. Let it start with us. Let it start with me. Let it start with us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight. Let's give the Lord a hand clap.